Well, good morning, church. We're in John chapter 10. We'll be starting in verse 22, and um, we'll read through to the end of the chapter, verse uh, 42. So read with me in your own Bibles if you would. Verse 22, John chapter 10. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan, to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed him there, believed in him there. Let's pray. Jesus, um, you are the good shepherd. We want to be your sheep. We want to hear your voice. Uh, we want to see your works so that we can have more faith, so that we can believe. Um, we, we trust in your word. We trust that you have given us this word for a reason. Um, we pray that we would have receptive hearts, uh, that our souls would be in a place uh, to cling to these words, to respond in obedience, to heed every warning, uh, to receive every blessing, to believe every promise. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in uh, the beginning of John chapter 10, uh, we saw Jesus um, talk about sheep and shepherds, and we talked about that last week. Jesus had said in verse 11 and verse 14, I am the good shepherd. And in this passage, we get to see the Good Shepherd in action, uh, really going toe-to-toe -to -toe with some wolves. Um, so, verse 22, let's set, set the scene. It says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. The uh, Feast of Dedication. So, you've heard me talk uh, in other parts, and when we studied in John, and then quite a while ago, and when we studied Mark, um, about the feasts that were required for all Jewish men to participate. To, to participate in. Uh, Passover was one, the Feast of Tabernacles was another. Um, so this is, a, this is a feast of, uh, this feast here in chapter 10 is not one of those feasts. It's not one of the feasts that, uh, where all the men are required to go to Jerusalem. In fact, the Feast of Dedication isn't even a biblical feast. It's not in Leviticus or anywhere else in the law. This is because the Feast of Dedication was a feast that commemorated um, the, the second dedication of the temple, which took place in the time period 
uh, in those 400 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. After Malachi ends and Matthew begins, there's this time period that's not included in Scripture, but of course, time was still happening and things were still happening. And one of the things that happened around 164 or 165 BC is there was a bad guy named Antiochus Epiphanes and he attacks Jerusalem and he robs the temple treasury. He, he made um, possession of a copy of scriptures uh, punishable by death. Uh, he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. He burned incense to Zeus. It was a rough time for Israel to be sure. 80,000 Jews were killed and just as many were sold into slavery. Um, but then there's a rebellion, a successful rebellion led by Judah Maccabee and his guys who would be known as Maccabees. Um, and they rebel, they overthrow the reign of terror and then they clean out the temple and they rededicate the temple. Um, but there was a problem. The lampstand, that big menorah in the temple, needed to be lit, and they only had enough oil for one day. The oil was made according to a specific recipe. It had to be blessed by the priest. They had it had to be sanctified oil, and they only had enough for one day. When they use it, the oil miraculously lasted for eight days, which is, long, is as long as the Feast of Dedication lasts. Um, and by the end of that day, eight days, um, new oil had been prepared according to kosher standards. To commemorate this temple dedication and the miracle of the oil, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Dedication every year, also called Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah. Um, and it, it was still a young feast, less than 200 years old. Passover was already well over a thousand years old at this time, and of course it was in the scriptures. Moses was there for the first one. So, so Jesus is in Jerusalem for Hanukkah, but Hanukkah isn't as big a deal at this time as, say, Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles would have been. So Jesus is in Jerusalem now, uh, at the temple, on Hanukkah, and it's winter. Now that might sound redundant if you know when Hanukkah is. It's in winter all the time. It's like saying it was Christmas and also December. Uh, but the, the word there is actually more about the weather than the season. Um, it means that it was a cold, stormy day. Uh, that day was a wintry day. There was a storm brewing, and so that kind of sets the tone of the narrative. It wasn't a sunny day, there was a wind, there were thick clouds, you know, the physical storm is going to be echoed by another kind of storm, because the clouds around Jesus' ministry are about to burst. There's another confrontation coming, and it's going to be one of the last ones before the big one. So it's the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. It's winter, verse 23. Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? Keyword there. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now we've talked about honest questions and dishonest questions, right? And people still ask questions with either a, a true heart or a deceiving heart. Um, we were people like them. We know people like them. People say, well, if God wants me to believe in him so much, why doesn't he just like write a message in the clouds or something? He made the clouds, that's something. He invented them and everything else. Um, no, that, that kind of question of like, well, if God wanted me to believe in him, why would he mean it? That's not an honest question, usually. Um, but now the Pharisees are saying, well, if you, you want us to know that you're the Christ, why don't you just come out and say it right now while we have you surrounded and outnumbered? Really? Um, why would the Pharisees ask this question now and not at another time? I think the season has something to do with it, and even the weather. Um, Jesus had been in Jerusalem recently, just a couple months before, for the Feast of Tabernacles. 
and at Passover too in the spring. These feasts would have been um, well attended. They would the Jerusalem would have been much more crowded. Jerusalem would have been full of people, common people, poor people, sinful people, you know, the kind that like Jesus, the kind that Jesus likes. The working classes wouldn't have been able to go down to rich, powerful Jerusalem for this newfangled feast of dedication that wasn't even required of them. Jesus wouldn't have had the numbers, the crowds of Galileans swarming him. Uh, but also, it's outdoors on Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch, and it's stormy. Uh, now, if, if you think that's not enough to keep a crowd away from Jesus, then you haven't been paying attention. We have cars and we meet indoors and rain will still stop people from coming to church. So, Jesus doesn't have the vast number of supporters right now present that he does at other times in his ministry. Um, that's what I'm thinking. Um, that's why I'm thinking that the, the enemies corner him now and say, tell us right now, right now, you're on the spot, are you the Christ? It even says they surrounded him, which sets the tone. That, that's a hint. You know, when there's, uh, when there's crowds, they aren't even able to say whether or not John the Baptist, who's dead, is a, a prophet or not. And that's too divisive. They don't want a line in the sand. They're not those kinds of people. They're politicians. But now they want to get straight to the point. They want to draw a line and they want Jesus to cross it so that they know when and where to attack. They say, are you the Christ? Tell us plainly we are in doubt, which we'll, we'll come back to that. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear, they bear witness of me. As always, he doesn't really give them the answer that they are looking for. Um, if you've had any sort of prayer life for any length of time, then you know this is also how he deals with us. Um, he doesn't always give us the answer that we're looking for. But his answers are far better. And he tells them, oh, I already told you. Do you really want to know? I've already given you everything you need in order to believe. Now, there's several places in the Gospels where you can go back and see where he said pretty clearly what he is. And we'll look at a list that I lifted from a commentary in a little bit. Um, and, you know, it's not in, in John, but in Matthew especially, Jesus talks about my kingdom pretty frequently. You can't really have a kingdom without a king, can you? In John, of course, he goes further with the I am statements. Um, they've already tried to kill him for that, right? I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life. Uh, he, he's already claimed to be the subject of scripture. He wasn't shy about that. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but these are they that speak of me. Um, now, I found this, this list, and I'm, I'm totally stealing from David Guzik here, but he lists the things that Jesus has told them already just in the first 10 chapters of John, not including anything after that, and not including other, other gospels, you know, when Jesus says, I told you, he says, I told you I'm the one that came from heaven. He said that in John 3 and John 6. I told you, whoever believes in me has eternal life, John 3.15. I told you I'm the unique son of God, John 5.19. I told you I will judge all of humanity. That's kind of a big deal, also John 5. I told you that all should honor me, just as I honor God the Father. That's quite a claim, John 5.19-23. I told you the Hebrew scriptures speak of me. We already mentioned that. I told you, I perfectly reveal God the Father. I told you, oh, sorry, that's in um, John 7, 28. 
I told you I always please God and I never sin. John 8.29 and John 8.46. I told you I'm uniquely sent from God. John 8.42 and then again later in John chapter 10 he's going to say the same thing. That he's been sanctified and sent from the Father. Um, I told you before Abraham was, I am. That was a really hard one for them to hear. John 8.58. I told you that I'm the son of man. Prophesied by Daniel and Ezekiel. John 9.37. I told you that I will raise myself from the dead, if you were willing to listen. That was very recently in verse 17 of this chapter, John 10, 17. I told you that I am the bread of life, John 6, 48. I told you that I'm the light of the world, John 8, 12. I told you that I'm the door and no one can get in except through me, John 10, verse 9. I told you that I'm the good shepherd and I give my life for my sheep, John 10, 11. Wow! <laughs> so they say, well, why are you keeping us in suspense? You're being so subtle. You never say anything clearly. Just say it plain. He says, I I told you. Really, I, I told you. I've been very clear about my role here, about being the Son of God. He's told one of the Pharisees personally that he is the Savior of the entire world. John 3.16 is addressed to Nicodemus, the, the teacher of Israel. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's me. That's very clear in Scripture. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He told the crowd in John 5 that the Father had given him the authority to judge the whole world, every soul. He says, I am going to judge. I am the ultimate judge of your soul. That's pretty clear. But the real information that he shared, he said all of those things out loud in the red letters. But the real information that he shared wasn't actually with words at all. It was with his works. That's what he's referencing here in John 10. And this is actually the way it is with everyone else. <laughs> your actions communicate much more information and much more clearly than your words often do. Maybe than your words ever will. And that's what Jesus says, The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. This is also what he had said in chapter 5. In chapter 5, the authority was questioned, and he gave the most comprehensive response to his uh, accusations levied against him. John 5.36, after he reminds them that John the Baptist had already told them all about him, um, and before he says, you know, my father bears witness to me, I bear witness of me, but he says, but I have a greater witness than John's. For the works... Sorry, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. This is also the same answer that he gave to a discouraged, imprisoned John the Baptist. Remember, John came to prepare the way for Christ, and then John found himself in prison. And John began to wonder, as he was waiting for his execution, is this really him? Like I, I put a lot of work into declaring the Christ, and I said it was him, and I baptized him, and I remember that was a really cool thing, but now I'm, I'm doubting. Is it really him? Maybe he thought things should have turned out better when the Christ came. But listen to this passage from Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, verse, um, verse 2. It says, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. His works bear witness of him. If you glance ahead at verse 
37, near the end of the chapter, Jesus said, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. So the Pharisees in John chapter 10 say, Tell us if you're the Christ. We're in suspense. And, and it's really just like John, John's disciples had asked, Tell us if you're the Christ. And Jesus gave both of them the same answer. He says, I've already told you, uh, if you've seen the things that I do, if you've heard the things that I've said, then you know. But the thing is, you, you have to watch. You have to listen. And you have to be willing to receive the things you see. If you watch and listen, then, then you can see. And verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, Back in verse 24, the questioners, the accusers really, they confessed their lack of faith, which is a serious matter. They said, how long do you keep us in doubt? Doubt is the opposite of faith. Now, the word used here sometimes means suspense. It's even translated that way sometimes. Suspense. And both suspense and doubt are conditions of unknowing. Doubt is saying, I can't really be decisive here because I don't know what's true. Suspense is saying, I can't be at peace here because I don't know what's going to happen. But by saying these things, they have confessed, we don't believe. We do not believe. And, and, if you, and the Im implication there is, if you tell us, then maybe we will. But we don't believe them either. We doubt. Uh, and they, they, uh, they say, they, uh, they, they assumed that their doubt was due to the lack of information. That's what they're implying in their dishonest questioning, that their lack of allegiance to Christ is due to lack of information, that this in turn has produced in them a lack of faith. They doubt. No, that's not the way it works. Lots of people think this way, but it's not actually the way it works, and Jesus calls them out on it. He says, doubt comes from lack of allegiance. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. You can't believe unless you follow me. Our hearts are set against God. We are naturally, instinctually opposed to Him. Therefore, we doubt. They say, you're keeping us in suspense, and Jesus says, no. You're keeping yourself there. You're keeping yourself in doubt. They say the lack of clear information has hindered us from believing, but we know. We know that's not the way belief works. Lack of information does not hinder childlike faith. Have you learned more about Christ before you were saved or since you've been saved? And what made you saved? You believed and you followed him. The information, the information that our souls are thirsty for comes afterwards. Jesus says in Luke chapter 18, verse 17, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. The little child doesn't stay in suspense. They're not patient enough, for one thing. They say, we don't, the, the Pharisees here, they say, we don't believe because you haven't told us in very plain words. Jesus says, no, 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 that's not true. You, I did tell you. My works have been very clear at communicating this whole thing. No, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Because you don't follow my, my voice you won't let me be your shepherd. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 
the Pharisees. They wanted to make it about knowledge. Jesus wants to make it about obedience. He still does. Following. See, there was the unspoken sort of understanding, which is easy to see through. The Pharisees were saying, oh, we would follow you. If you just say that you're the Christ. They're saying, we're, we're good sheep. We're great sheep. We just need to know who to follow. Can you, can you tell us if it's you? And Jesus said, sheep follow the shepherd. You're not doing that. They surround him. They're trying to trap him. They are against him. This is not good sheep behavior. Earlier in the chapter, he told them that they weren't true shepherds. The leaders of the people, the, the, the Pharisees, the, uh, the Jews that, that he's talking about here, are, were supposed to be shepherds. They were supposed to be guiding the people of Israel, and they weren't. And Jesus said they're not even true shepherds. They're thieves and robbers. Well, here he's saying they're not even good sheep. <laughs> you're not, it's not just that you're not a good shepherd. You're, you're not even a good sheep. You won't even follow the shepherd when he's right in front of you. Verse 28, let's keep going. It says, And I give them, my sheep, which you're not, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Now, why would Jesus mention this deal about snatching the sheep out of the Father's hand and things like that? Why would he talk to the Pharisees about that right now? I mean, it's not so much a rebuke, which is what we expect him to tell them. Um, and it's obvious that they're setting a trap for him. It's obvious that they are hostile, that they're malicious, they're mean. And Jesus has told, has told them, you're not my sheep. Now, if you've got wolves in your flock... I think the first thing that you say to them is, go away. But it seems to me that Jesus is listing for them the benefits of membership within his flock. Hmm, why? Well, I think there are two reasons. One, our God is a jealous God. He, he is jealous for his people. And he is firm in his resolve to keep the hearts and the souls of his people. Uh, these Pharisees, they are not shepherds. And they're not sheep. What, what does that make them then? What's the other role left in the metaphor? It's wolves. They're wolves. And while we look at these verses as a comfort to us, and rightly so, people go to this verse and say, yes, Jesus has a firm hold on me. I love that. But Jesus isn't addressing his sheep in this passage. He's addressing the wolves, saying, you will not take my sheep. The legalists liked to be popular. They prayed out loud in the marketplace. They took the best seats and they liked to be noticed. But now Jesus is noticed. They want to remove Jesus and they think that once they do, they will again have the hearts of the people back. They will again be basking in the admiration of the people. The same people who said the first time they heard Jesus, you don't talk like the scribes do. You talk with authority. They... They want that back, and they want to remove Jesus so they can claim their authority again, and Jesus is adamant. You will not snatch them out of my hand. I know what you're doing. You're trying to get rid of me, and you're gonna, it's going to seem like you succeed for a while, but you won't take my sheep. Jesus takes this stance against his enemies. He takes this stance against your enemies. He takes the stance of a shepherd who cares for the sheep, like David, telling King Saul he was prepared to take on Goliath, and, and Saul's like, no, 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 you don't understand, you're not a warrior, you're just a little shepherd kid. You know, and David, 
He says in 2 Samuel 17, he says, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Jesus is the kind of guy who takes a lion by its beard and kills it with his hands. So when Jesus looks at these guys that are cornering him, that are surrounding him, he says, no one, and I mean no one, takes my sheep. He's looking at lions. He's looking at wolves, and he's looking for where he can grab them by the beard. That's one reason I think that he mentions this. But there could be another reason for saying what he says here, and, and could, both could be true, actually. There's often layers in the things that Jesus says, as I'm sure you've noticed. Now, so yes, there, there was probably defensive aggression in what Jesus says, protecting his sheep from the wolves. But you can't skip the fact that he's listing some really beautiful and comforting truths about the benefits of being his sheep. We take comfort in these verses. We read them and sigh and say, oh, how good it is to have the security of this kind of shepherd. And the Pharisees would hear that, that advertising campaign. And I'd like to think that Jesus is saying this partly for the benefit of Nicodemus, or maybe Simon, another Pharisee that Jesus visited and ate with, or Joseph of Arimathea. We have to remember, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. Jesus loves Pharisees still. And if you look at verse 38 again, you'll see that Jesus gives them a starting point. He gives them an invitation at the end of this list. He says, even if you don't believe me, okay, then believe in my works. So that then, you'll, eventually, you'll, you'll know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. He still pursues them. And because of their hardened hearts, Jesus is much more firm with these men than he would be with, say, Mary and Martha. But... I read these verses and yes, you can see him telling the wolves that they aren't getting his sheep, but we know that the glorious grace of God also makes a way for wolves to become sheep. And it's a good thing to be a sheep. Now look at these benefits here. As a sheep, as someone on, on this side of the shepherd, look at the benefits of following the shepherd messiah. You get eternal life and you get eternal security. Jesus can save you and Jesus can't lose you. Eternal life and eternal security are both promises for his sheep. And that's important because there are whole schools of Christian thought that believe in one and not the other. Somehow they've been able to divide that in their minds. You know, the eternal life, sure, if you can make it. If you can make it to death in fairly good condition, um, but eternal security? Well, that's only yours once you die. Um, I think that's crazy. I, I don't know of any doctrine that says you can go to heaven and then after a billion years lose your salvation. Because we believe, everyone believes, that once you're there, then you're secure. As if God is stronger then than now. Um, you know, the, there have been many who believe that you can be snatched out from the Father's hand before death, but... What we have to realize is that eternal life is a quality of life that begins with salvation and ends never. And you, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. Eternal life is not only the length of days, right? 
It's the quality of life. I mean, most Christians believe that hell is eternal. That people live eternally in hell. Do we call that eternal life? Absolutely not. Eternal life speaks of the quality, the condition of life. It is the quality of life that is knowing Jesus. Now listen to what Jesus himself says about this in John 17. John 17, verse 3. This is the upper room discourse. He's talking to the 12. He says, this is eternal life. Okay, dictionary definition. You know how all the worst speeches start with Webster dictionary defined from around. Okay, so eternal life. This is eternal life. This is the definition. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That describes the quality of eternal life, knowing God, knowing Christ. And, and that begins with true conversion. That eternal life begins with conversion, but you know what? Your eternal security begins then as well. The door closes and it is locked. And Jesus the shepherd stands and says, you're not getting my sheep. Once you have been saved by grace through faith, you are secure. Your name is written in the book of life. There is no one who can snatch you from your shepherd's hand. Paul says in Ephesians, he's so confident that, that you have an immovable, secure salvation, that in Ephesians 1, he says that you are already seated with Christ in heavenly places. That's how secure you are. This does not mean that false conver conversions don't exist. They do. And we should be aware of that. This does not mean that we do not, as Paul says, examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. We need to do that. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about assurance, and you can have it. If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are secure. If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are secure. To be saved is to be secure. And John includes these verses in our text that you won't find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Because John writes, in part, to assure people of this security. We've seen before that John writes, that you may believe. Um, but when he writes in his letters, 1 John, 2 John, John, 3 John, uh, he adds something to his, his purpose. 1 John 5.13, I'll read it to you. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. <laughs> this could be said of our passage in John 10. It's written that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue believing. Believe and don't stop believing. But I, I want to continue on because Jesus isn't done yet. In verse 30, he, he really delivers a strong punch here. He says, I and my Father are one. This is short and important and it leaves a mark on the people that he's talking to. And so what Jesus says, he says, I and my Father are one. And he's describing union, but not confusion. Uh, you notice he does not say, I am my Father, which would not make sense. That would remove any distinction between the members of the Godhead. Um, but heretics have believed this throughout church history, that Jesus and the Father are the same, that the Father died on the cross, that the Father was in, uh, um, inc incarnated and born of a virgin. That, that's not true. He says, I, he doesn't say, I am my father. He says, I and my father, two separate distinct entities, are one, the same God. He describes unity with distinction. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't, but we believe it. 
The Pharisees didn't understand it and didn't believe it, and they really didn't like it. Verse 31, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Again. Uh, this is the third time this has happened. It's the second time just in the Gospel of John. Uh, John 8:59 of the temple, it says they took up stones to throw at him. Jesus escaped. Uh, back in Nazareth, this is, has happened before. This isn't in John, but it's in the other Gospels. Uh, they tried to throw him off a cliff, and he escaped. So this is at least the third attempt. This is the third attempt on his life that we know of. Uh, but this time, Jesus doesn't just walk away. He stands there. He looks them in the eye. He is full shepherd right now. And he asks a question. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Now, it's hard for me not to imagine a little bit of sarcasm here. Jesus asks, Okay, I see what you're doing. You're going to kill me right now. What are your charges? What could you possibly have against me that would hold up in a court of law? And you just said, tell us if you're the Christ. I said, okay, look at the things I've done, and now you want to kill me. So, you're basically admitting that you want to kill the Christ. Which healing was so bad that I have to die for it? Which resurrection? Which free meal? Which sermon did I preach where people were blessed and demons were cast out? Lives were restored. Which of those things do you hate so much that you're going to kill me? Verse 33, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being man, make yourself God. Now, one thing to note here is some people uh, have gone to the scriptures and said, Well, Jesus never really says he's God. I mean, John says he's God, um, but Jesus never really claimed he's the Son of God. Yeah, but he never really claimed to be God himself. Um, the Jews that heard Jesus speak, that were able to look him in the eye, that heard his exact words and the exact language that he spoke them, that they understood, they say, he said he's God. They believe, he says, you make yourself God. Interesting to note, this is not the charge that, that ultimately gets him killed. This will be the reason the Jews tell themselves, uh, but th they know that this charge won't actually hold up in court. In fact, in John 18, when Pilate says, what accusations do you bring against this man? They can't answer. Um, they actually just say, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have del delivered him up to you, which is a terrible kind of thing to tell a judge. They say, trust us, kill him. But John records these words, probably to tie it into the conversation. Jesus says, what have I done? They say nothing. They say it's not for a good work. It wasn't for a deed that you did. On Good Friday, they will change their story. But their accusation now is not anything Jesus has done, but it's something that he has stated. It says, you being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus is going to talk his way out of this in a really interesting, kind of confusing way. So let's pay attention. Verse 34, Jesus answered, answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know, and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Um, I sort of hope that the Pharisees' initial response was the same as mine when I read it, which was something like, wait, what? Um, but then they got mad and they tried to kill him again. 
uh, but I, I sort of hope they were confused because I was. What is he saying? Ultimately, he's saying you don't have a case. That's what he's saying. Their accusation has to do with words. They they love parsing words. They love going to the, you know, the the exact uh, grammar and all that stuff. They they cared about scripture for in in that regard. Um, and so they're saying, you make yourself equal with God. That's against the rules. You can't do that. And then Jesus gives them a Bible argument to confuse them. Um, Jesus says, well, in Scripture, you see words used differently. He's doing um, textual criticism here. In, in the judges in the Old Testament are called gods, Elohim. And that, that's true. It happens in Exodus 21. happens in Exodus 22. Uh, most notably in, Ex, in Psalm 82, which is what Christ is quoting here, and I'll read that from that in a bit. Now, in every case in the Old Testament where the word uh, Elohim is used, uh, the person is called a god to show their power and their authority, not necessarily their divinity. Uh, in terms of exaggeration, this is something that still happens in, within our language, within pop culture even. Um, someone's really, 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 really good at what they do. You call them... You know, you know, someone, maybe not a Christian, might call them a god. Um, they don't actually believe that that expert in their field is the creator of the universe and the, you know, the supreme moral authority. Um, it's not the name of God used in those Old Testament passages, Yahweh. Um, it's more of a, a, a rank. Um, and it's very clear in every case that the judge or ruler being referred to as a god is not actually divine, merely powerful. In the same way, we use the word Lord. Uh, when we use it as a proper noun, as a name, we know we mean God. But in other places, it's just Sir. Okay, It's kind of surprising the first time you go to Mexico or a Spanish-speaking country and you hear worship songs uh, where Lord is just Señor. Um, but that's kind of what the word means. Is that the word Elohim is used to describe the rulers of the people. Interestingly enough, <laughs> these are the rulers of the people that Jesus is talking to. And in Psalm 82, the word is used to describe people who God is not very happy with. And Psalm 82 addresses people very much like the Pharisees. Listen, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, free them from the hand of the wicked. And then in verse 6 of Psalm 82, I said you are gods. That's what Jesus quoted in verse 34. I said you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. So Jesus quotes this verse, I said you are gods, from Psalm 82, 6. And in doing so, he does two things. He shows them that it's not a crime to use the word gods like he has, much less the Son of God title that he has been using. And also, he directs their attention to a psalm about the leaders of the people failing to shepherd God's flock well. Failing to defend the poor and fatherless, afflicted and the needy. And the psalm ends by saying, you shall die like men. Now, the Jews knew their scriptures. And you, you mention one verse, and their mind fills in the context. They know what this psalm said in its entirety, what it's about. And even though Jesus raised this very interesting point, which should have you know, garnished further discussion, rabbis were all about a good Bible discussion, they keep their anger, they continue on their warpath. And in verse 39, it says, Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And look where he goes to, verse 40, And he went away again beyond the Jordan, to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. 
Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. He goes to where the hungry people are. The sheep who hear his voice. John had been killed recently, not long before this. Um, perhaps these people had mourned for John, and Jesus then shows himself to them as the fulfillment of John's prophecies. We know from Acts that John had plenty of disciples who held on to his teaching long after his death. Jesus finds these people, and they believe in him. Jesus, the good shepherd, defends his flock, and he's going to go and find his sheep. He's going to go and protect his sheep. Um, and we, we have nothing to do but rejoice with this passage. We have, we have no greater response than to rejoice and to worship around these truths of seeing that we have a shepherd who holds his flock securely, who protects from wolves and also shows a grace and an avenue for wolves to become sheep. Um, we benefit from these truths. We benefit from this gospel. We rejoice in it and, and we live in light of it. So let's pray. Jesus, um, we give glory to your name. We thank you that you're a shepherd. We're delighted to be your sheep. We pray that we would continually be able to hear your voice. We thank you for the things you say. We thank you for the things that you do. We thank you that you are the Son of God and God of very God. We love you, Jesus. We ask you to bless your church. In Jesus' name, amen.